Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Oh, hey. Didn't notice you there. This is your pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher, Dr. Something. And hey, it's your... I did notice you there. Uh, it's me, Dr. Ward, your ER MacGyver. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know which one of you guys sounded creepier with that <laughs> intro. I didn't notice you there. I did. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah. This, this is a good. It's this is a good creepy episode. We're gonna get. We're both very good. At, <laughs> we're both very good at clearing the bar. Doctor Santosh and I. You guys sound like you. You sound like a regular bunch of supervillains, oh. which is perfect because I do believe checking my calendar. It's July, and you know what that means. Mm. Is it is it time for? A, a tiny little get-together down in San Diego? Oh, just a few 10,000 friends or so <laughs> to celebrate the San Diego International Comic-Con, which means this episode is going to be da, 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 Comic Book Medicine, Ooh, part three. Part three. <laughs> well, once again... It is time for an episode on comic book medicine where instead of our usual episodes, we're going to take a look at all the multitude of things that happen in the multiverse and pull out which ones might actually take place in the real world. Or we're going to geek out over comics and medicine for about an hour. <laughs> Strap in, folks. Yeah. It's going to get nerdy. So the very first one is... Everybody knows when you're doing CPR, you have to keep a certain rhythm going. Now, most of the time, people start thinking of the typical 70s song, Staying Alive, because we all love the delicious irony. (laughs) 
But as opposed yeah. to another one bites the dust. Another which one bites the dust. Which yeah. also is that same yeah, another one bites the dust, morbid, but keeps the same pace you need to pump. However, I figured for comic book medicine I would add a slightly nerdier tune that you can use to keep time with your chest compressions. And that is, of course, the Imperial March from Star Wars. It tracks to about 103 beats per minute, the perfect rhythm for CPR. Go on. I'll wait. You can test it out. (laughs) You can pause it right here. Go listen to it. Come on back. And after you're filled with your John Williams-y goodness, uh, we'll resume talking. (laughs) Better yet, why don't I go to the hospital, do some CPR? That's right. (laughs) And sing sing out loud. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and watch every pair of eyes turn towards you in horror. Absolutely. <laughs> so hey, you, you should probably stop trying to force choke your subordinates, Proz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. I already um, blasted them to Tantooines. Oh, nice. <laughs> Dr. Ward, why is 100 beats per minute such a good rhythm? To use as in in general practice to try to restart a heart when you're when you're providing external compressions. Uh, what's considered a normal heart rate is between somewhere between sixty to a hundred, and when we're doing CPR, it's not quite as as efficient as a normal heart contraction. So we you have to do a little bit faster. In fact, you can probably only get about oh twenty thirty maybe percent of uh, regular heart out, um, cardiac output doing CPR as opposed to a natural cardiac contraction. Like the heart beating by itself. So Like the heart beating by itself, exactly. Yeah, so it's exactly. a little bit fast, but that's what you got to do to keep at least some blood, blood flowing. Okay, and for- on the opposite end of the spectrum, if you were like me, certainly in early on in my residency, many people are a little bit overzealous and beat it like 130, 140 beats per minute, which is also right. detrimental when it's that fast because... If your heart beats too quickly, it doesn't have enough time to fill up with blood, and then the output's also a lot lower because of that, too. So not too fast, not too slow is the take-home. Right. Um, I will uh, put in a pitch for my wonderful pediatric practitioners out there, doctors, nurses, etc. Depending on the size of your baby, 12 years old and younger, it does get a little bit more complicated. There's kind of a sliding scale. But in that case, you do want to go a bit faster than your 100 beats per minute. And as always, remember to make your chest compressions deep and full. One might almost remember to try not. Do or do not. There is no try. (laughs) Especially in CPR. Thank you, Yoda. Thank you, Yoda. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when 900 episodes deep you are in podcast as good listen will you not the take home message is that if you are at a comic book convention San Diego or otherwise and somebody goes down and you do not see a nearby AED and you have to start CPR and don't know how fast to go use the force but you know the dark side apparently <laughs> How many of you got a chance to check out the film came out several years back, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've buttoned. I've definitely buttoned or two. 
Yeah, I saw the previews. So. <laughs> <laughs> I I actually oh. I'm gonna I'm gonna uber nerd this. Um, I remember it best, the Benjamin Button from the um, low rent Broadway intro for the Oscars that Hugh Jackman did. No, Golden Globes, where he did uh, a reverse aging thing. Uh, using cutouts. It was an awesome uh, Benjamin Button thing. So we had Wolverine doing Benjamin Button while singing in the style of Broadway, which was just awesome. Well, for those of you not familiar with The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, it was a 1922 book by F. Scott Fitzgerald, later made into a movie with Brad Pitt, was it 2008. Oh, oh, my God. <laughs> so we're a little we're a little late to the gate on this one, but later made into a Brad Pitt 2008 film, which involves the curious case of a young man who was born as an old man and proceeded to age backwards, getting progressively younger and younger and younger until when he finally died, he was a mere baby and then presumably a zygote and a sperm cell before winking out of existence. (laughs) Now, this is a reverse aging disease, which is uh, mostly fictional. We can get to one of the real world close equivalents in a moment. It is often contrasted with another much better known film Jack starring Robin Williams that talks about a disease of advanced aging progeria so I thought we could go a little bit over both of these diseases and talk about how you know traveling through time is maybe not the best idea if your cells get started without you (laughs) that's true that's true yeah progeria um, is it's sad for a couple of reasons. One, because we really don't have any good treatment. You really just treat the age-related illnesses in your children as they arise. But the other reason is, you know, <laughs> you have, like, tiny little old men and women walking around, which is a little sad to see in and of themselves. But If you haven't seen that new John Mulaney, Nick Kroll special, sure. Oh Hello, oh, on Broadway, hello. that's... Yeah, oh, hello. So that's what, you have a bunch of kids of all races and genders who end up looking like tiny little old Jewish men. Look up the pictures. I am I am not yanking your chain, but Hutchinson's, Hutchinson-Gilford progeria syndrome is a genetic condition that presents with dramatic, rapid aging beginning in childhood. So kids normally look pretty as expected at birth and early infancy, but they have failure to thrive and begin developing characteristic appearances including very prominent eyes, thin nose, thin lips, small chin, protruding ears, loss of hair, joint abnormalities, and in fact most of them end up dying by age 20 or so of things like strokes and heart attacks, things that would kill people three to four times their age. Right. So it's uh, it's very quick. You really don't have anything to stop it. So you just do the. And it's kind of sad because by the time you're, you know, a teenager, you do you are pretty aware of what's going on. You have a lot of little kids that end up looking like old people, and they very visibly stand out, and they don't have very great lives because they're often ostracized by their classmates and um, subject to bullying and abuse. 
and also they're more prone to injuries from it because they're older and they don't heal as well. Right. Now, it's estimated that there are no more than 250 children worldwide living with this condition, which is, of course, partly due to the fact that most of these kids rarely reach their 20th birthday. But the chance of a newborn developing it is somewhere between 1 in 4 million to 1 in 8 million. So this is not a huge epidemic, and most of us will go through our lives without ever seeing something like this without the use of the Internet. Benjamin Button was known for physically aging backwards, but there has been a case report of somebody who essentially mentally aged backwards, and this are two brothers in England with what is called terminal leukodystrophy. Now, progeria is where someone appears to become progressively older with the passage of time. Terminal leukodystrophy is not an exact opposite, but it has the closest that we're going to get right now. So mental and behavioral progression doesn't seem as pronounced, but these 30 and 40-year-old men started reacting as though they were 20 and then 10 years old, and that's kind of been where they've stayed. It's almost like a rapid-onset form of dementia, and it's tied to degeneration of the coverings that protect the nerve fiber known as myelin. So these diseases of rapid and reverse aging are pretty serious, and you know I'm surprised that we haven't seen more of them or the dangers of aging disease show up in more time travel comics. <laughs> I think you know, in this is one of these cases where truth is stranger than fiction, where you actually have conditions. So terminal leukodystrophy is one of a family of leukodystrophies, where you have damage or destruction in the white matter tract of the brain. And a lot of the time, these problems are accompanied with behavioral changes. So either someone's behavior will become bizarre, or in the case that you're describing, Josh, it's very childlike. But because they're so rare and not very often described, you end up with these almost, you know, sci-fi type stories coming out of medical journals that frankly are a lot more fascinating than anyone could ever dream up in fiction. Right, and to be fair, almost all of the progressive neurological degenerating diseases have a mental capacity breakdown eventually. You know, late-stage Alzheimer's, late, even late-stage Huntington, Huntington disease, you're going to get dementia. But this is a very specific pattern of behavioral degeneration that you'll see it's like aging backwards like you you start to become a kid again it's interesting that they consider a 20 year old's mentality set uh, a sign of dementia no (laughs) (laughs) i remember what i was like in my 20s and demented is you know a generous yeah yeah description we're a little like up on our you know we're we're a little too big for our britches and we think that oh we got through our teenage and a lot of us are done with college, and we know it all. <laughs> but do keep in mind, if your cells are advancing, you know, Doctor Who is no spring chicken at 900 years old, and I'm sure that even with two hearts, one of them probably is riddled with atherosclerosis. So these diseases are not to be trifled with. Next on our list, how many of you saw Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency? New show came out last summer starring Elijah Wood, and a couple other, I don't know, British people. 
<laughs> I know I'd heard of it, and I saw Elijah doing his walkthroughs, you know, on the late night circuit. And I believe this show is about someone is not a detective, but who accidentally becomes one. Is that correct? It follows the story of Dirk Gently, a holistic detective who believes in the fundamental interconnectedness of all things. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha, okay. Imagine if Sherlock Holmes was just really, really bad at his job. Same personality, but really bad? Well, aggressively optimistic. Like, oh, I found this cat. I wonder if following it will lead me to the next clue. Uh, sir, no crime was committed. Well, cats always know where to find crime. Got you know, and, okay. and then he'll follow the cat and there will be a crime. So <laughs> He is good at it then. He's unintentionally good. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. But one of the characters on the show, uh, the sister of the Watson character, suffers from a fictional disease, and I'm saying fictional now, in the show it is not a fictional disease, called pararibulitis that causes hallucinations, so she's always thinking she's in life-or-death scenarios. And I thought pararibulitis would be something that would be interesting to talk about. So one of the things is... Pararibulitis, which is fun and difficult to say, sounds a little bit like a pain-gating syndrome, a little bit like a fibromyalgia or one of those types. But the difference is there's a hallucinatory component. This character is a drummer in a punk band, and in the first episode, she gets this aura, almost like you would before a seizure, and then her drumsticks turn to knives in her hand and she has the sensation that knives are cutting into her hand she's looking at knives she throws them away and her arms burst into flame this would be utterly terrifying now if you look at you know from an outside character's viewpoint she's just flailing her arms around and screaming looks much more like a seizure than anything else but from her perspective she's actually holding fiery bloody knives I so, bet you she rates her I thought this 10 be, out of 10. I knew, I bet you anything. I knew it was going there. Yeah. So, Ward, how many how many episodes or how many cases of pararibulitis have you seen it's in the ER? Every night and every day. Well, okay, let's explain to our uh, non-medical listeners what a pain-getting syndrome is. Well, you know, fibromyalgia and sometimes chronic pain patients suffer from pain conditions where instead of the the nerve cells conducting signals because there's active tissue destruction going on, like in the case of cancer or trauma, something went haywire with the neural circuit. And now the pain fibers are firing, even though there is no active tissue destruction, there's no active trauma going on. You know, the most Probably the most dramatic dramatic example would be the phantom limb pain syndrome when someone who loses a limb and still feels pain in that arm that's no longer there. Sure. You can also see a lot of these same kinds of pains with diabetic neuropathy, which has been described as a burning, shooting, stabbing kind of pain. It looks like the producers didn't really do too much beyond add a hallucinatory component. Our body has a number of nerves, both big nerves and small nerves, that carry sensations like temperature or pain. And as Dr. Ward mentioned, they are meant to protect us. You do not want to step on that rusty nail. You do not want to sit on a hot stove. You know, you'd like to know if you're being stabbed. These are useful bits of information to have. But sometimes the body will misfire, whether it's because the nerves don't work as well anymore from something like diabetes or for an unknown reason, such as with a chronic pain or fibromyalgia syndrome where we don't entirely understand why the nerves are misfiring. 
And then you get these sensations, which I think it's a pretty good representation of what some of these patients describe feeling. And it's tough to treat pain patients because their experience is very, very subjective, and everyone has their own interpretation of pain. After all, what Batman would feel as pain may be very different from what you or I would feel as pain. And Wonder Woman doesn't even notice that. That's, you know, plinks off off the ocean. (laughs) Uh, Praz, I know as an anesthesiologist, you do train to some degree in pain management and pain syndromes. But do you take care of any pain patients on in your practice or do you remember them from your training? So basically when we treat pain, there's two big classifications of pain. There's acute pain and there's chronic pain. Acute pain is the type of pain that I see mostly now, mm-hmm. which is the pain that anybody would feel shortly after, say, having a surgical incision or something you might see in the emergency room if somebody did have trauma and broke your bone or cut something off or something like that where there's a very clear distinct cause. Mm-hmm. Chronic pain is the type of pain that we were just talking about now, the type with fibromyalgia, diabetic neuropathy, where we have nerves that are you just seem to be firing like inappropriately for various reasons that we don't really understand. I did have some experience with this in residency. The unfortunate thing is that these days, the field of chronic pain is essentially turned into, for lack of a better word, legal drug dealing. Um, We prescribe lots and lots of narcotics, and in some instances, like, it's the only thing that will cause any semblance of relief, but the flip side is in some ways it also tends to make the patients dependent and make them even more hypersensitive to the pain that they're feeling. All right, that's another cause of pain syndromes is actually opiate pain medications that can actually cause hyperalgesia where your nerves are hyperactive when when you're no longer taking massive doses of, you know, opiates. Is it possible that the, you know, this character is actually on drugs and in withdrawal or is that not part of the story? Yeah, in this show, no, it is, she's not on any drugs. Oh, okay. So she's definitely suffering with one of these lungs. Uh, no, in fact, the only the only relief from her condition is provided by soul-sucking energy vampires. Oh, doctors. Spoiler alert. Oh, doctors. Yeah. <laughs> well, we don't, um, we never awake during the day, so, yeah. you know. <laughs> I, I, I would like to make a little, like a soapbox moment right here. The government, the U.S. government for a long time and the FDA has stonewalled our ability as doctors to use a soul-sucking energy vampires in the treatment of chronic pain. And uh, if we had just the ability to do a little bit of research on soul-sucking energy vampires, we could end an opioid epidemic in this country. I mean, <laughs> come on, sheeple. Oh, you know, it's all these partisan politics, Antosh. You know, one or two mistakes with leeches, and then all of a sudden the government yeah. won't let you use energy vampires. Ugh. It's just not even, ugh, just, it makes me so I, frustrated. I don't want to get into it. I don't, I know this is, you know, this is comic book medicine. We should be having fun, and it's not time for soapbox. But yeah, please right. call your representatives yeah. and talk to them about letting us do research on soul-sucking energy vampires in the treatment of chronic pain. <laughs> right, right you're congressman. If not, now, when? <laughs> uh, that might actually happen. <laughs> Satoshi. 
in today's climate. <laughs> We're going to get, like, one wackadoodle listener who calls up. <laughs> Sean, Sean Spicer is going to be talking about it in a week. <laughs> we heard on uh, on a podcast from a very reputable source that soul-sucking energy vampires. <laughs> Jeff Sessions gets up there. I would like to prosecute anybody who th- even thinks about using soul-sucking energy vampires in their medical practice. <laughs> I feel like that one phrase did more to interest you in the show than the entire description I gave before. I, I want to walk around the intensive care ward the next day and be like, huh, sepsis and gangrene. You know what we need here is some soul-sucking energy vampires. <laughs> <laughs> They're not a cure-all, man. You can't just throw vampires at everything. That would suck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a vampire. It would be a grave. It would be a grave mistake. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just trying to sink my teeth into this issue. That's all I'm trying to do, you know. <laughs> but we're gonna get away from this. That vampires belong in our Halloween episodes. This, of course, is comic book medicine, and this was a great year for the rise of even more superheroes, especially ones who are maybe not as traditional as we would think of as our heroes. So there's two different programs I want to talk about that look at things from a very unique perspective, both of them dealing with mental health. One, of course, is the 2016 movie starring young Magneto, I mean James McAvoy, as, well, a interesting character. This was in the movie Split, where he was found to have 23 different personalities with a 24th. Now, I know a lot of you probably didn't see this because it was an M. Night Shyamalan ding-dong movie. (laughs) What a twist! (laughs) But, in the biggest twist of all, Shyamalan actually made a pretty decent film after a run of, I don't know, four or five, what's he up to? But, he did make a good movie, which I think we need to discuss because it takes a really unique I won't say healthy, but a really unique, in-depth look at dissociative identity disorders. So, Ward, I know you took a look at some of these articles as well. Did you want to help me cover what DID is? Sure. Um, DID is, I guess it's the more modern version, more modern term for what used to be called multiple personality disorder. It's when a person, usually after some sort of childhood trauma, develops... Uh, compartmentalized, meaning, you know, separate individual personalities that don't really interact with each other. So when they they can break into these certain personalities with certain triggers. So um, if, you know, if I have a, I won't say alter ego, but if I have another personality that's a, oh, let's say a little old lady, when I break into that little old lady personality, I don't know anything about Dr. Ward or, you know, what I, my other life. So Basically the Jekyll and Hyde complex, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jekyll and Hyde is a great example of this. And it's not it's not new to comic books, I don't think. Like Two Face is kind of kind of a multiple personality situation, right? Well, a little bit except for the fact that Two Face always knows what his identities are up to and one of the hallmarks of this disassociative identity disorder is that by and large most of the alter personalities are unaware of each other's existence. There may be one or two controlling personalities that interact 
but they are completely blanking out. You can almost think of it another way would be like Tyler Durden in Fight Club. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, going I'm going all the way back to high school psych and usually people with multiple personality disorder or dis um this DID only have maybe two or three personalities that are floating around or you know they're switching in between but apparently M. Night Shyamalan in his story that this gentleman has 23 24 uh, personalities that are being juggled right right now of course that's where most of the audience starts to think oh of course this is just a standard horror trope how are you going to have you know true multiple personalities this is something that people yeah, people really have to defend. But interestingly enough, in addition to usually starting very young and, as you mentioned, being a response to trauma, it's not uncommon for people who have, on average, with this disorder, to have, on average, 8 to 13 personalities in a typical patient, although the largest case did have more than 100. Oh, wow. Really? This has been pointed out several times now. One or two of the things that are brought up in Split are, one, again, that Kevin is thought to have a severe case, so having 23 personalities is really not a far fetch. And most of them are not harmful or creepy. There's one that's a 10-year-old boy. There's one that is a flamboyant fashion designer. There is one that is very prim and proper in addition to all the others that we see. And typically, the identities created by individuals, just like the movie shows with the therapist and Kevin's relationship, are just ordinary people. They can be men, women, children, young, old, and they're usually just regular folks, but not always. Some individuals will create personalities that are animal, like they may have a wolf or centaur, not human. They may believe that they are mythological beings, such as a demon or an angel. They'll even create personalities based on celebrities or other public figures, thinking they're Matlock or MacGyver. One of the big points that shows up over the course of this movie, Split, is one of Kevin's personalities that's kind of coming forward. It's something he calls the Beast. A little bit of a spoiler, all the other personalities, you know, sort of ganged up to fight against the Beast or help defend Kevin's main personality. And they say that when he's the beast personality, he's stronger. He can climb walls. He has some super strength and rage. And this is, again, where people start to say, hey, hey, this seems like you're just pushing the limit of this disease a little too much. And again, not as much as you'd think. Uh, Interestingly, you may see some changes in biology. The body can undergo physiological changes when one personality shifts to another. Now, this has a lot to do with hormone regulation. So a personality that's supposed to be stronger than the others might cause adrenaline production to increase while they are that personality, while a personality that's a different gender might increase the production of estrogen. Several alters are known to carry different prescription glasses because their eyesight literally changes from personality to personality. Now, this doesn't happen every five minutes. Some personalities will take control of the person for several days. So it's not an instant change. But research on brain patterns of multiple multiple identity disorder has produced a lot of data that does show it. Each 
personality had a distinct brainwave measurement and pattern of brain function. And this was done with functional MRI. A couple of the you know, clickbait stories that they talked about showed a woman who in one personality was colorblind for red-green, which ended when she was successfully reintegrated. Another woman who had diabetes baffled her physicians by showing no problems regulating her sugars with one personality who was not diabetic, but severe hypoglycemic swings with another personality that was. Uh, a young man was allergic to citrus fruit in some personalities, but not in others. So there can be real physiological changes that change with the personalities, which I think is what makes this disorder so fascinating to study. When you say this woman who is normally, in, with, with one personality, she is um, colorblind, and with when she gets integrated into another personality, she's not, do you think this is a somatization issue when she uh, is colorblind, when you're body thinks it has a condition and it experiences everything about that condition, everything bad about that condition or any, every symptom, symptom of that condition without actually on a, you know, on a cell level or on a cellular level or on a physiological level having that condition. Such as, you know, I, I would think colorblindness. So it's really tough to say because there's only been very limited studies where they do the functional MRI. Right. And the ones where they have studied, there do seem to be some trackable changes. But I certainly think a degree of somatization is going to be possible because each one of these personalities is usually in response to some terrible psychological trauma that the personality is trying to protect sure. the main identity against. So if there was some reason that being colorblind would have been protective, sure. You know, they could placebo themselves into being colorblind. But in the end, all of these personalities come together and kind of show that they are legion. And Split the Movie is probably the best M. Night Shyamalan film since Unbreakable. And spoiler alert again, has some ties to that film. So go back, give it a shot. And then as long as we're talking about all of Kevin's personalities and split becoming one giant legion identity, that brings us to our perfect segue for the other person who might be suffering from a little bit of dissociative identity disorder. Santosh, why don't you tell us about Professor X's kid in the TV show Legion? Oh, yeah. So I learned all about Legion because it was really fun to read about it as a Marvel character who is Professor X's child. And as with most uh, young people put under Professor X's ward or his watchful eye, he totally screws them up. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sorry. He had one job. One job. And I, I'm sorry for any uh, Patrick Stewart or uh, Professor X fans out there, but seriously, he screws up uh, regularly on the Summers Kids. He screwed up with Phoenix, and he screwed up with his own kid. <laughs> We're just saying it like it is. Yeah, Let's yeah, totally. Here. Yeah, he's not great with yeah. teenagers. And especially if they're like overpowerful You know, teenagers. I'm beginning to wonder, maybe it's not that his name is Professor X. Maybe he was an ex-professor, <laughs> and he got fired for screwing up so many of his teaching jobs. <laughs> Mr. X doesn't have quite the same rank. Yes, exactly. Is, aren't you an ex-professor? Oh, no, no, my name, Star with an X. That's why Xavier. Xavier, that's my name. Yes, that's it. Charles, I guess, Xavier. 
And that's why they call me Professor X, not ex-professor for being, you know, horribly unethical and being kicked out of multiple institutions. <laughs> Putting my students in near constant danger. As far as I remember, and Josh, please correct me if, I'm, if I mess up the backstory, but Charles's young son faced tragedy as a young child. And I think Professor X knew about him and tried to shield him. Is that correct? He tried to, like, protect his Professor own. X didn't find out about him for a very long oh, time. I was thinking of another, actually, another character where he screwed up, like, the most powerful mutant ever who had, like, a tiny little arc. Um, and I can't remember his name. Oh, Proteus. Yeah, but yeah. And, and yeah. He had a, he, Professor yeah. X got around got back around, in the day. He, he had he had a lot of tiny little love children. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, he, he didn't learn about him, but this young man who had late psychic abilities he experienced some tragedy and i think the very first one of those tragedies was a terrorist i believe he he saw a terrorist killed and he actually because of his psychic ability he absorbed the personality of that terrorist kind of into his own mind that terrorist at first was you know telling the, the kid to do bad things but eventually became a protector of this guy's psyche. Interestingly, when that personality became the dominant one, this child had a mutant power. And Legion, the story of Legion, this young man taking on yet other personalities and other ones and other ones, and I believe the comic book has like something on the order of hundreds of personalities. Is that right, Josh? And tells of like thousands where each of them, as they become dominant, you know, one of them's an ex-drug user, you know, one of them is a a rape victim, you know, and is each of them kind of become a forefront of his personality. Each of them have their own mutant power. So while that particular you know, aspect of legion, of this legion of personalities is active, he's able to manifest a certain power. And I I think it's a beautiful merger of psychology and psychiatry of trying to balance out these personalities in a dissociative, uh, you know, personality disorder, not schizophrenia, which we should clarify, by the way, and merging it with this thing of, you know, are the personalities trying to protect him and how, and then the powers that they manifest. I, I think, like, the sci-fi and... Now, I am going to you know, to interrupt briefly to mention that it's not that every personality has a different mutant power. Oh. It's that, much like Professor X, who was the world's most powerful telepath, telekinetic, his son would have inherited that type of ability but during his traumatic event that fractured his mind, right. each one of his personalities is responsible for a different aspect of his power. So oh, gotcha. rather than each of them having a power, one might be able to put people to sleep, use the telepathic power of suggestion to make others sleep, right. while still another might have a pyrokinetic, be able to set things on fire from afar. Yeah. And only by confronting his own literal inner demons and selves can david fight and resume control of his personality and then have access to that aspect of his power and in the comics he can only call upon abilities that 
he has come to terms with his own ability. He's going on like a giant mental health Pokemon quest. <laughs> yeah, to try to literally catch them all. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's really cool in that, you know, people with true dissociative personality, they're trying to create this own the same mastery but then when you blend that with trying to learn how to master your mutant power that's a cool story it's one of the coolest stories i've ever seen in all comic books and there are some fantastic visuals and a surprise appearance by a comic book villain who is quite well known in the marvel universe so I will not spoil those, but give Legion a watch, give Split a watch, and really consider that some aspects of multiple personality... Now, again, the one last thing before we move move on to the next story is the difference between multiple personality or disassociative identity disorder and schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a break with reality. You will hear hallucinations. You will see things and imagine... If you have paranoid schizophrenia that people are coming to get you, that you are hearing voices in your head constantly telling you to do things, multiple personality disorder, you still go through a perfectly normal day-to-day life. You are not hearing voices telling you things. People are actually sort of jumping into the driver's seat and you are not aware of it. So you could be leading two or three different entirely normal lives with no one the wiser as to you having multiple personalities. Whereas schizophrenia, you cannot hide that because it is a breakdown of your ability to interact with reality. I, I will put it out there that um, even though the, you know dissociative personality disorder is very real, if someone uses it as an excuse to, uh, say, like, cheat on you, maybe question it. <laughs> yeah, like an identical twin. Yeah, I was gonna say back in the eighties, it was the evil twin. Oh, in the soap operas, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but evil twins were easy to identify. They always had a goatee. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh my god! I just realized I'm the evil twin. Oh no! Oh, that's but, uh... right. I... There's a good me out there somewhere who must be found and stopped. Yeah, we've and we've never met good Josh except. Uh, I, I mean, he's been photographed once or twice, I think, on your driver's license. Can't say I'm too surprised. <laughs> maybe you have a you. Maybe you have an evil, eviler twin, more evil more twin, evil Josh. Twin. <laughs> like with with hair everywhere on his face, like a big beard, except the mustache, <laughs> like a Viking beard. Yeah. Once again, continuing on in the superhero, this year was notable for the rise of one superhero and the fall of another. Fox's movie Deadpool, first R-rated superhero film that broke all bounds of popularity and stayed true to the comics, and also the death of Wolverine, the Hugh Jackman Wolverine, as well as the traditional Logan, currently in the comics. It's his cloned daughter, X-23, Laura, who has taken on the mantle, and in the film, it is unclear. It's another Laura who is maybe a clone, but go see Old Man Logan. However, both Logan and Deadpool have one unique mutant power in common. Do any of you know what that is? Uh, swearing. That would be swearing. Dysfunction. <laughs> Inability to keep a relationship. Is that... <laughs> it's, it's an odor, those... especially when they get out of their suit, like out of the latex. This is odor. Yeah. 
strong odor. Okay, well, you know, I'll tell you what. I'm glad that none of you guys said claws or teleportation. Because as we all know, Deadpool's teleportation is through a device given to him by Cable. But Wolverine's mutant power, and the one that Deadpool acquired during his experiments, is, of course, healing. Uh, mutant healing. And I bring up Wolverine because in addition to being one of the most invincible mutants, he is also constantly referenced and joked about as being one of the hairiest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just shy of Beast, I believe. It got I mean. me wondering... It got me wondering... Wolverine has taken more damage than probably any three or four other mutants combined, and he is still incredibly hairy. And then I ran across this story, and I couldn't stop thinking of it, and it put everything into perspective. And that is that using fat and hair follicles to help heal wounds without scars. So the short story, this comes from early January, the medical press published in the Journal of Developmental and Cell Biology. Doctors have found a way to manipulate wounds to heal as regenerated skin rather than scar tissue. Meaning, we now have, at least at a benchwork lab level, the ability to regenerate like Wolverine and the trick is, you don't form scars, but you have to replace it with fat cells that you trick into growing hair. So whenever a wound heals up, it becomes hairy. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we were not, because, you know, scar tissue looks not like other tissue. It's because it's made of only one type of cells, right? The myofibroblasts. And before, we we didn't know that once that scar tissue forms, it could form anything else. Rather, in this case, than using uh, scar tissue, I believe that we're trying to actually get skin to regrow. Is that correct here, Dr. Josh? Like in its original form. Right, exactly. But I think, you know, some of the best tissue is right around the hair follicle. Yeah, so it's in fat cells. So fat cells, also known as adipocytes... Uh, you know, the cute little adipose from Doctor Who, for those of you who watch it, are normally found in the skin, but they're lost when wounds heal as scars. And usually, as Dr. Ward mentioned, you find myofibroblasts, which previously we thought could only form a scar. However, by changing myofibroblasts into fat cells, you can manipulate wound healing so it leads to skin regeneration. The secret is you have to regenerate hair follicles first. After that, fat will regenerate in response to signals from those follicles. Nice. So you get a uh, hairy regeneration. You're saying you had to regenerate the hair follicles first. So how do you go about doing that and then letting the skin fall? Well, that is an excellent question, and I'm glad you asked it. There are additional factors or... You know, hair and fat develop separately, but not independently. Hair follicles form first, and factors necessary for promoting their growth were discovered. Now, what you do is you take a protein that will help myofibroblasts convert to hair follicles. That fat will not form without new hairs, but they use a protein known as bone morphogenetic protein, or BMP, and it sends the signal from the hair to the fat cells and 
12, yeah, and with it makes myofibroblasts become a different type of cell. So, B, are you down with BMP? Yeah. <laughs> nice. The findings do show a window of opportunity after wounding to influence the tissue to regenerate rather than scar. Now, this will not happen anywhere near on a Wolverine scale in seconds. In fact, at day 23 is when the first new fat cells appear after being seated. So it takes almost a month. So you're still going to be laid up quite a while before we hit Deadpool and Wolverine regeneration levels. How long do most surgical wounds usually take to heal, Pros? In general, it depends on the type of surgery, but... Generally, most people recover about six weeks, four to six weeks. Okay, so might be shrunk to possibly half that time if we get the Wolverine protein. And I don't like bone morphogenetic protein, and we've talked about scientists being terrible at naming things. So what is your best Marvel or superhero type name for this protein, knowing that it has the potential to help us regenerate and hairify our skin. The Revlon factor. Yeah. <laughs> <Samson>. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. That's if the uh, evil rival Vidal Sassoon doesn't get yeah, to it first. Uh, <laughs> you could go like with the suitcases and make it Samsonite. Ooh, I like oh, that. Nice. Oh, I can't believe oh. I can't believe Beast of all people was hair shaming uh, Logan. Yeah, that's I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> It's not fair for me to talk exclusively about Marvel without turning to DC, who has finally put out its first successful superhero film in Wonder Woman, and I worry because it sets up expectations that I don't think they can continue to meet. <laughs> no faith? They're no. Uh, good <laughs> None. Zero. I have to say, I've not seen but, any good DC DC movies. Nolan Batmans were fantastic, but I'll actually throw uh, one thing in which I absolutely love. DC, more than Marvel, has had um, some of the best animated films and animated series. Then Catwoman happened. <laughs> but but let's go into so Santosh. You recently got back from a a conference on your favorite parasite toxoplasmosis, yeah, correct? Yeah, so I, I, I am a researcher, a genetics and, and protein researcher in Toxoplasma gondii, the little one-celled parasite, which is a cousin to Plasmodium, the dreaded cause of malaria. We all got together, some 200 of us um, who exclusively work in this field, in a beautiful little town in Portugal, and we talked about our, you know, how our field is advancing. Did you happen to talk about crazy cat um, ladies? We, we actually did not. We brought it up a little bit, but, you know, a lot of us are focused on, like, microbiology and real clinical syndromes. So we don't do a lot of the, what we consider to be a little bit of fringe science, which is the association of, like, psychiatric disorders. Fr fringe yeah. science? Let me tell you, sir, crazy cat ladies are not mere fringe science. In fact, if you look into sure. the DC universe, spending any amount of time around animals is just a horrible threat sure, to life and limb. The biggest danger would actually be to heroes because both Batman and Catwoman are constantly around critters that over the long run, would give them inescapable diseases. Now, Batman, we have mentioned before, would 100% contract rabies because living around that many bats, only one of them would have to have it, and he's right. down there every night, dead. <laughs> dead of rabies, 
Go listen to our episode on it. It'll be hilarious unless you are Batman. <laughs> but Catwoman would be equally at risk because she would get crazy cat lady disease known as toxoplasmosis. And Santosh, you research this. Why would Catwoman be doomed well, from the start? I, I, I love to talk about my research. I'll give you guys the, the quick punch. This parasite is propagated in every single mammal, so including human beings, and it's a really successful parasite. I'll tell you that the most common way to get it is actually from getting the tissue cysts, which are in meat. And if you don't cook your meat properly, like you eat steak tartare, that's one of the most common ways uh, to acquire toxoplasma. And then it goes up in your brain, most of us, if we're immunocompetent, meaning that we don't have AIDS or we're not getting medication because we have a transplant or we don't have cancer, um, it, we'll never know. We'll never know our entire lives. And as far as we know, by and large, we don't have any strong associations with any psychiatric diseases. But the other way you can get toxoplasmosis is this one-celled critter, uh, for some reason, only in the intestines of cats, not in any other intestines, when they when they get in there, instead of causing you know normal toxoplasmosis and, and getting into the cat, which it also does, it uh, it has sex in the cat gut. <laughs> it it uh, undergoes sexual reproduction, and the result of that are these uh, zoites, these toxoplasma, which then form a hardy cyst, and this. This cyst, this oocyst, will deposit itself in the cat poop in soil. And then if you change the kitty litter and you don't wash your hands properly, or if it's if the cat shits in your garden and you don't wash off your vegetables, any of these things, you can get toxoplasma from those oocysts. So there is a proposed well, well here's why it's, a proposed here's... association although it hasn't been proven that if you own a lot of cats um the, the cats only technically they only shed once when they're little kittens but that if you're around enough cat poop eventually you'll get toxoplasmosis and there's some research to show that there's some associations with things like depression or maybe schizophrenia or a couple of other mental diseases. Well, I won't go as far as, as yeah. schizophrenia, but certainly in animal models, the parasite has been able to change the behavior of non-cat oh, hosts, okay. such as making a rat, cueing a rat to hang out in right. the middle of a room where a yeah. cat can eat it. Or to enjoy the smell of a cat urine so a cat can eat it. Pretty much anything that leads the rat to reintroduce toxoplasma back into the digestive tract. Now, as Santos mentioned, yeah, as Santos mentioned, some recent studies suggest that toxoplasma may influence women to be bigger risk takers to the point of increasing attempted suicides have shown, you know, a higher likelihood of this parasite being in those women, not as a direct cause, but an association, or even possibly causing women to show more outgoing extroverted behaviors. Why women? Because you don't often hear of crazy cat men. <laughs> Certainly possible, statistically okay. less likely. I will, so, yeah, I'll, extrovert... I'll give it to you for sure. 
extrovert and risk-taking to the point of suicidal. Sound like anybody? I don't know. Maybe Catwoman, who's breaking into places when Batman could find her, who's jumping off rooftops, who's engaging in thoroughly unhealthy criminal behavior. Maybe she just became the most athletic crazy cat lady ever. Well, to be fair, you know, the the relationship between Batman and Catwoman is complicated. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not so I, yeah. straightforward. It's not like he comes in, he's like, oh, you're stealing something, you know, let's hook up, you know. And, and the depression thing could uh, uh, explain the, uh, the, the uh, increased suicide risks. Well, I mean, basically, now, again, it's not a terminal disease unless you're immunocompromised. So it's a silent opportunistic killer. Of course, DC Comics, like any comic company, likes to hand out life-threatening illnesses and injuries like their candy in order to boost sales. But Catwoman's life, aside from being a ticking time bomb of brain parasites waiting to erode her skull, is contained. All she has to worry about is contracting rabies from Batman, because, again, we've spoken on that, or passing passing on her toxoplasma to an unborn child if she ever got pregnant. That is, that is a true risk. God, she's around a lot of cats. <laughs> that is a very real I'm, risk. I'm I agree reading. with that one. And I will definitely give it to you, Dr. Josh, that in the mouse models, the mice and the rats, they all of a sudden, they are no longer risk-averse when they... Uh, when they contract toxoplasmosis, when they smell rat pee, they should run away because, hey, or, or cat pee, they should run away because, hey, I don't, you know, I, I might get eaten. But in their case, they're like, eh, cat pee, okay, let's just hang. So. It sounds like being 20 years old. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Like, you're, you're, I'm not afraid I'm of just... <laughs> Maybe all 20 year olds have toxoplasmosis. All. <laughs> Well, it's not uncommon. It says one, uh, about one in five Americans carry yeah, the parasite. It's, it's more common than we think. The risk is actually about one percent per year in, um, you know, in kind of vulnerable populations. And then if you do things like eating steak tartare, you know, it's even more common. And you look at Selena Kyle, a young woman of privilege, who is a bachelorette surrounded by cats. I'm just saying there's a pretty good explanation for why she might have joined the Batman Rogue Gallery. <laughs> it's it's a pretty good explanation. I like it. I like it. Now, the last one I want to go over is another one we've covered in journal clubs in the past, but it is a topic that comes up in so, so many comic books, and that, of course, is a complete and total lack of permadeath. No one ever stays dead in comics, with rare exceptions. Even Gwen Stacy eventually got brought back in the Spider-Verse. So, resurrection. What do you do when it's time to bring someone back to life from the dead? And you may be thinking there is no way there could be a legitimate medical story we can touch on that has to do with this. And you would be wrong, because like comics, there is always another amazing mystery on the way. And for any given medical problem, it seems there's always a research team trying to use stem cells to find a solution. It's like a magic bullet for everything. Clinical trials to treat everything from diabetes to macular degeneration to, well, wound healing, like with with uh, Wolverine. But in one study that was previously launched in India, and we'll talk briefly about that, and is now on the way for a second attempt in Philadelphia, 
there is a group trying to inject stem cells into the spinal cords of people who have been declared clinically brain dead in an attempt to grow new neurons, connect them to each other, and bring them back to life. I see absolutely no ways that this could go wrong (laughs) at um, all. I actually would um, point people... Uh, you know, if they want to get a good look at this, um, to actually one of my favorite DC movies, which is uh, Under the Red Hood, <laughs> wherein, you know, our Robin, one of the many Robins being resurrected by the infamous Lazarus Pits, you know, instead of coming back to life, uh, which the Lazarus Pits were never meant to resurrect, they were meant to make you feel younger if you were already alive so he does flash back to life and promptly goes batshit crazy pun intended here's the deal bringing a person back to life you know as in them who they are we are our brains essentially you know everything else kind of maybe acts on it or interacts with that little you know that those four pounds of goo in between our ears but if you want to quote unquote bring someone back to life brain activity somehow has to be brought back to the same stage that it was at when the person was alive and functioning so that's the goal that's the ultimate goal so this was originally attempted in Rudrapur, India in April 2016 to inject stem cells to attempt to regrow neurons. Now, everyone acknowledges that the person is not going to sit up and have a zombie-like awakening. They have been clinically brain dead for some time. This is just to see, can you get the brain started in signaling? There is no attempt to revive the ghost in the machine, and these people are still, for all intents and purposes, clinically dead, which is part of what causes the problems. The initial study never enrolled any patients in India. It was shut down in November 2016 because India's drug controller general still hadn't cleared it. Now, India is not exactly a paragon of ethical research, but neither are they the bottom of the barrel. So for this not to be able to enroll anyone and be this controversial even there, imagine how insane it's going to be trying to get this study started anywhere in the u.s especially when here we've seen that movie what happened to yeah. robin <laughs> yeah robin <laughs> yeah. did not do well yeah. but i i think it is it, it's good to think about what sort of activity you want to look for mild activity on a objective measure in this case it might be a, an, an advanced eeg or an aeg um, and then slowly you know talking about brain stem functions coming back and this kind of thing If nothing else, you can sustain the brain and and a little bit of the body at least long enough to to harvest organs, which is another, I think that's a decent goal. I I don't know. It's trying to bring the whole brain back after it's dead is a tall, tall, tall order. If the trial mirrors the protocol for the Indian one, the goal will be to enroll 20 patients who will get several treatments first an injection of stem cells isolated from their own fat or blood. Second, a peptide formula injected into the spinal cord to help nurture new neurons growth in something that totally doesn't sound like a Lex Luthor plot. Uh, The company has tested the same concoction called BQ-A in animal models. Third, nerve stimulation and laser therapy over 15 days to spur the neurons to form connections. So, Basically, an injection into the base of the skull matrix style, an injectionation, an injection, injectionation, injectionation, an injection into the base 
of the spine, followed by laser activation. <laughs> and you need dun, dun, all dun. these components because essentially you're you're getting the cells into place, and then you have to have a way to activate them. So I do understand all the steps that are being used. And so mechanistically, I think they've got a good handle on what's going on. But I, I think I agree with Dr. Josh here that this is a, a pretty big ethical conundrum. Sounds like it would be expensive, oh, too. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I you know, just I, I'm thinking about what you have to go through, um, you know, pros just to kind of maintain function for an anesthetized brain and then, you know, kind of slowly get them, you know, back to back to normal. So I can't imagine how tough it would be, you know, going to brain death. Yeah, this oh, goes yeah. through some pretty murky ethical waters because, you know, when we say the word death, there's a medical definition, there's a legal definition, and there's a, I don't know, common sense sure. definition, I suppose. Like when in the hospital, when someone is declared dead usually like the legal definition usually refers to the fact that there's no heartbeat anymore the body is dead but sometimes right clinically dead but sometimes the body can be somewhat functioning the heart can be still beating the um the the blood is still flowing on the other hand there's no brain activity and declaring someone brain dead is that's a whole another ball of wax and different hospitals uh, may have different definitions, and uh, you know, one of the hospitals I worked at, not only did we have to, you know, document that there's no, you know, neural functioning going on, there's no reflexes, they actually do a perfusion scan of the brain, and they they have to show that there's no flow wow. to the brain. Yeah, that's a well. Whole... It's also how do you do trial paperwork when the person participating sure, is legally sure. dead? Who do you consent? Yeah. You know, right. at what point? Well, at what not, point does inform? Yeah, do you get consent? No, no, no. Legal sure. death, brain death. No, no, they're not legally dead. They're brain well, dead, so right? They, brain, there's two legal. Well, no, no, no. So they've gone yeah. even death kind is, of right. further um, because they've gone all the way to brain death, which is, I think, that's I think the furthest extreme that you can get to. Um, you know, where it's indisputably this person. Well, no, they have well, a pulse. Well, these oh, people have a pulse, well, I guess right? That's true. You're right. Yeah, because we've yeah. We've so in most places, this. when they You're say right, clinically right. dead, right. absolutely. Yeah, when they say people is clinically right. and legally You're dead, right. they don't have a pulse. Well, so it's the last thing I want to do. Instead of so, it, it's definitely an interesting dilemma is restarting the brains of the dead and you know once we can resurrect that's going to open up a whole new bunch of sci-fi shows and superhero comics and that of course lets me close out talking about everybody's favorite mad scientist Sergio Canavero who is still plowing ahead to do the world's first head transplant just days ago in a paper published June 14th he and a small team of surgeons severed then reconnected the spinal cords of a group of mice using a special bioglue, a polyethylene glycol or PEG glue that he talked about in a TED Talk, which will be uh, what he plans to use on a 30-year-old Russian patient in what will be a flaming violation of ethics to transplant a wow. severed head. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just, you know... Keep, keep looking for that. He's plowing ahead, and 
is now reconnecting rat spinal cords. So really no other no other news to add to it. Just a story I like to stay ahead of. <laughs> I think that wraps it up for this year's episode of Comic oh, Book so Medicine. Oh, and that also means that we're nearing the end of our our third season as well, but we have grown so much over the last year, and it is all thanks to you wonderful listeners out there. So if you're just finding the show for the first time, thanks. Rate and review us. If you have been listening for a while, you can support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially by clicking on any of the links in the show notes and leaving us comments, questions, concerns, or feedback as well as by giving us money via Patreon or, I don't know, just a check made out to Dr. Santosh, Dr. Warder, myself, really. We'll, we will take anything. We're not picky. Yeah, and... I, um, I want to thank everybody <laughs> at, uh, the kind of social media guy uh, here on Travel Medicine Podcast. Um, I want to thank all of you guys for um, liking our Facebook page and I know it's a small accomplishment, but we got over 100 likes. Um, and, uh, you know, the, this season we did that. And, uh, yeah, I'm really proud of how we're doing. And, and thank you so, so much for, you know, continuing to chime in and support and, uh, you know, like all of our uh, posts that we do. And I know we're trying to get as many of those posts into our journal clubs. And, yeah, it's it's been really wonderful hearing from you. Yeah, this group of super friends is doing quite well for itself. And, you know, we don't have a moon base yet, but we're we're working on it. And in the meantime, this show is produced by me with a lot of help from everyone you have heard today, as well as many others behind the scenes. Our music is created by Rachel Ledger. And we are a weekly show, so please contact us with all of your thoughts and feedback and we will try and incorporate it and until next time as always happy travels happy travels happy travels Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.